Hello, and welcome to the Talented Amateurs Podcast. My name is Joe Randolph, your host, and today we have Shafra Gray-Reed, who is an account director in corporate affairs at Weber Shanwick, where she is a where she is based in London, England. She is a seasoned and forward-thinking communication strategist, and today we'll dive into her career and the impact she is driving across the UK. She has an extensive experience in devising and executing high-profile global PR strategies and communication campaigns in a wide variety of industries, which has allowed her to successfully complete can create compelling stories that resonate and stick with and connect with many audiences. So let's get started. Shafra, how are you doing today? And welcome to the podcast. Really well, thank you. How are you doing? Doing well. I'm really glad that we're able to, to have this conversation. I know we've been uh, planning this for a while. And, you know, I know as you and I had the first time we were able to meet, you know, I felt like you had a really unique story. You're doing some great work there in, in, in London and in the UK and really felt like uh, you would, the audience would benefit to hear your story and just hear to some of the excellent work that you're doing. So thank you for joining us today and really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, and no, me too. It's great, great to speak to you. And I'm really pleased to, uh, for the rest of this hour and just to tell you a bit more about, about what's happening. Absolutely. So as we get started uh, for the audience, maybe let's just maybe do an introduction and, and tell us who Shafa Gray-Reed is and just tell us a little bit more about your background, how you got started in PR and strategic communications. Cool. So not a, not a small question to start off with then. Um, so... Um, yeah, so I started off um, probably just over 10 years ago now, and I probably have a bit more of a, a, a different route coming into sort of communications than most people in that um, I started off in law. So my undergrad um, at university, which is college in America, um, I studied law and um, mainly because my mum told me to to study law, not because of I, I wanted to, but she made me do it. Um, so it was whilst I was at, um, yeah, studying that I thought, you know what, actually, I want to try a few different internships out and see, you know, if law is the right path for me or actually if something else. And um, I did a few internships at WPP, so a global advertising um, agency. And I worked on sort of um, disciplines from branding, strategy, planning, advertising and PR and um, I think from that I realized actually I really like um, this aspect because it's both creative it's both strategic um, and you know you get to really explore sort of the world through um, that earned lens of, of media um, but then when I finished that internship actually I thought you know I, I'm putting so much time and money into this law degree that actually I should try it at least um, so then when I finished um, studying I actually went to New York for a year um, and worked at a, um, a sort of an employment civil litigation firm uh, which specialised in civil liberties um, and I did a, a year-long internship there um, primarily as a paralegal um, but when I was there uh, one of the cases that um, my firm looked after was against Dominic Strauss-Kahn so the former head of the International Monetary Fund and um, and we represented the um, the uh, basically a maid in in the in the case who had accused Dominic of um, sexual assault, and the case basically attracted a lot of media attention, and um, you know to the point where actually it was like you know we really need to handle this. So whilst I was there, I basically ended up doing more and more on the media side and less on sort of the legal side, um, and then by the end of that year, I actually realised 
actually, you know, um, comms and sort of crisis management um, and, you know, liaison with, with media is kind of what I really want to do. And because I had the legal background, I thought, actually, let me specialise in legal PR. Um, so I went, came back to London and I worked at sort of big global law firms um, in PR um, and looking kind of at sort of strategic campaigns and, you know, how to sort of raise a profile of partners, how to raise a profile of the department um, and, you know, what, what the story is essentially that we can tell to the clients and to attract business. Um, and as well as I was there, I kind of wanted to take a step back and and think about more of the the um, the behavioural insights part of, of communications and what we do. Because, you know, it's really important that when you're talking to different audiences and when you're, um, you know, crafting that narrative, that you really understand who it is you're speaking to, why you're doing what you're doing, um, and, you know, what the point of the, of the message is. And I kind of wanted to get the theory behind the practical nature of what I was doing. So um, I took a year out and I went back to university to do my master's um, and went to LSE. Um, and did um, a master in, in political and social psychology, so but of communication, so really understanding why people think the way they think, why people do the, what they do, and why communications can can be that tool to really sort of change behaviour. Um, and so whilst I was there, I yeah, I I I, I sort of really grounded myself in the theory of, of communications and the theory of sort of behavioural insights and change, um, and kind of got a much more sort of strategic overview of of you know why it's essential to kind of ask those why questions before you sort of go into um into campaigns and into you know communicating with your audience um and one of my research areas actually at, at um my master's was in um communicating with black british audiences particularly um and you know we can go on to that a bit later but um i spent a lot of time you know, understanding kind of how brands and how, um, you know, different, um, even even governments can, you know, get insight into particularly underrepresented communities and understand actually the, the, the ways that words and the ways that you really need to understand the culture behind, you know, what's driving people and, um, and that will really help to penetrate and make the message much, go much deeper. Um, and so I finished my, my master's and then I um, kind of thought, actually, what I, you know, one of the ways to kind of change, um, you know, to bring about change through communication is, is actually through sort of big social impact campaigns, which you know, the best one. Um, so I moved into um, working in communications, strategic communications at um, the Home Office. So sort of the, the equivalent of the, the Department of of Homeland Security um, and I actually led on um, the the department's um, Brexit um, offering so um, it was sort of looking at how now that sort of Brexit had been decided and you know the vote had, had been casted um, you know the department was now looking at what are the main policy areas that we need to be thinking about in terms of um, our, our audience groups within the Home Office um, and I worked on a sort of really big campaign around making sure that EU citizens in the UK could stay after after Brexit. And so we're looking at, you know, how do we talk to the different audience groups? You know, there are a number of different EU countries 
it's not a homogenous group how do we really sort of tackle those individualities and sort of the different demographics within that group um and sort of what's the message of of, of the campaign um so yeah so that was that was great and um really really sort of successful in terms of delivering that um but i kind of then thought you know what actually i, I want to sort of have a bit more of a, a wider perspective on sort of industries and and what do we kind of um need to be you know what what's what's what how can communications help private sector as well as much as, as much as the public sector so i kind of thought the best place to go next would be to agency um and get that really um wide kind of knowledge of of different insights and different um businesses and kind of have that full um that, that full picture of of kind of comms in different areas so i'm in shamwick and that's where i am today very good. Now, thank you for that. A, a, a really comprehensive background. And I think you have a, a lot of just a couple of gems that I maybe we can tackle from 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 that. Um, you know, PR and I think a lot of people don't realize how much overlap between law and PR and, and strategic communications uh, play play with each other. Because I think you know, as you see, a lot of the people that run political campaigns, a lot of them are lawyers and they're driving strategies. And so when I, when you think about PR and strategic communications, it's not just about building a brand, right? It's all about storytelling as well. So talk to us about your approach in creating these stories and helping build the right images and the right stories and messages for your clients. What, what are some of the key pieces of uh, important pieces that you need to focus on or that you focus on when you're, when you're devising these strategies? Yeah, so I, I love that you said the word storytelling, storytelling, because that's kind of the, the you know the, the thing that people, not people, but sometimes businesses often lack kind of understanding what actually is their story. And for me, kind of one of the roots of of making sure that you can tell an effective story is kind of that starting point. You know, every story has a protagonist, every story has a narrative, uh, a beginning, middle, and end, and you kind of have to take that approach. Um, when you're working with clients as well so you know one of the things that we do is I think before you sort of go into any um, storytelling approach kind of what what do you want people to know you know where what what at what point are you at in, in your story you know where are you where do you want that journey to go and you know stories have highs and lows and um, drama and you know it, there's compelling you know um, points into each story so the best thing really is to start with that the strategy in terms of um you know thinking you're at this point and you want to get to that point so how do we get there you know how do we um uh, you know how do we look at your positioning how do we look at you know what do your audience um what do you want your audience to know about you who are your audience um you know what what's your brand advantage and what's sort of that brand um narrative you know are you a legacy brand are you a new sort of incumbent in the market are you a startup you know, are you sort of a social good brand, tech for good brand, you know, really understanding kind of what makes those those parts of your brand up is really important to kind of understand what that, what it is that you want that story to tell. Um, and also the culture. Culture is so important in, in, any, in any sort of context and understanding where your brand sits within the culture, you know, what, what are the sort of the cultural trends um, that's kind of pushing your your story in a certain direction, and how can you kind of you know what what does that sort of ecosystem look like of your audience, your brand, and the culture, and how can you what's that sort of strategic territory that you want to kind of really pinpoint 
in terms of, you know, this is the route that we really want to drive. And this is the message we want to drive, taking all of that into account. <clears throat> so that's kind of like my go-to first to really understand, you know, where, you know, where are you now? Where are you today? And where do you want to get to? And how can we use that mix of audience brand and culture to help really drive um, that story and, and, and define what that story is? How do you handle when clients don't follow your strategy because you're devising a strategy for them for a reason? What happens when they try to deviate or they don't follow the plan? Um, I think it's about working with them on, you know, because you'll often find that you'll, you'll start with like a big strategic, strategic thought and, you know, you've got this big strategic platform that you can create really great stories from that strategic narrative um, and, you know, sell that into media. And sometimes clients just want something quick and easy. You know, they don't want this big kind of like, you know, strategic thought behind behind getting coverage. Um, you know, they've got an announcement, they want to get it out. So sometimes it does, it, it's, you know, it, it's news driven and it's, um, and it's driven by, you know, by sort of internal developments that happen in, in companies. So I think quite often it's about the balance and it's about making sure that, you serve your clients in the right way, but also guiding them strategically and with, with counsel in terms of what the best approach for them is. So if the best approach is, you know, getting a piece of these out very, very quickly, then that's the best approach. But if we can ground it in, you know, the, in, in that kind of message of, of, of what their vision and, and how they're achieving that, you know, that's, that, that's the strategy, then that's always going to really drive that message home and kind of, repeat with with your key audiences kind of what that is um but sometimes it isn't always the case and you just have to get something out quickly so it's just about working with with clients in the right way to be able to um you know work out what their priorities are but also helping them you know be more 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 thoughtful and strategic in, in what they're doing so it's always about balance very good. So you, you mentioned and you talked about your your experience in the home office, in the UK home office, particularly as it relates to Brexit. I know you had some experience there as you were uh, driving the communications and the strategy and, and, and some of the education. Talk to us about that experience. We'd love to understand your approach in working and, searching, and supporting such a polarizing and political topic in the country. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely a polarizing topic. Um, and I think one thing with with working in sort of government departments is that, um, you know, as civil servants, you're you know serving the, the good of the people and helping helping you know the government of the day to try and achieve their objective in that. And um, I guess you know, as, as I mentioned, when I came to the Home Office, um, the vote for the ref- Brexit referendum had been decided. So, you know, we as the UK decided that we would be leaving the EU, um, which meant that actually there are a number of things that, you know, that impacts across so many different policy areas. You know, one of, so one of the big things that I worked on was um, freedom of movement. So under EU, um, being part of the European Union, there's freedom of movement for all people um, across Europe. So that means that me as a, as a UK citizen, I can go and work in France uh, without having to have any other, you know, law needed for me to go and work in that country. Um, but when, you know, the referendum happened and, and we voted to leave the EU, and that 
freedom of movement comes to an end. So, you know, how do we uh, ensure that all EU citizens who have made their lives um, and their livelihoods in the UK, how can we protect them and still enable them to stay here and enjoy that, that life? You know, the fact that they've contributed hugely to UK culture, to the economy, um, you know, they've started businesses, that they've got families, you know, we, we don't want to lose, we didn't want to lose anyone. And there was a real kind of bit of anxiety right at the start of Brexit, uh, or should I say the transition period, um, where people didn't know kind of what the policies would be, you know, um, whether they'd be able to stay, whether they'd be able to kind of still have their rights protected. So that was a big part, a big part of that job was trying to kind of um, alleviate those concerns through, you know, through communications, working with the government and the Home Secretary to kind of put a plan together uh, to communicate, you know, what the policy would be, uh, which obviously the policy is that they can absolutely stay and they'll have their rights protected through a, a scheme called the EU Settlement Scheme. And um, and how can we kind of, you know, we need to get sort of 3.5 million people registered to um, to formalise their status in the, in the UK. So there was a sort of a huge kind of change management programme, both um, sort of across different e-citizen um, uh, communities. Um, and as I mentioned at the start, you know, you're not speaking to a homogenous group and neither are you speaking to sort of one you know, age group. We knew that the, the majority of people in the UK from, from EU countries would probably be working uh, just because, you know, it's around freedom of movement, but but around, you know, making sure people are able to work. You know, we knew that actually that probably would be a, a, a really good portion, but there's people have been here for years and years and years. So we had, you know, elderly, we had really young people, um, people that didn't speak very much English, um, you know, third country nationals. So you have this really big pool of people who, one, they didn't necessarily agree with the um, with the rule, with the you know with the Brexit vote, because actually they didn't they they didn't vote. Um, you know it was UK citizens that voted. Um, so you know you, you're having to kind of talk to what could be quite a hostile group, um, just because of the nature of of, of Brexit. Um, but but what you're communicating to them is actually something really good that that they will have their rights protected. Um, but you're also trying to get them to do something. So what's the call to action in that? They have to register. And they have to apply um, to formalise their status. So that was a really so the complexities of the program, you know, the complexities of, of the audience and the message, and then getting people to do something for, for 3.5 million people was a huge task. So if you can imagine, it was it was spanning you know a huge number of departments in the Home Office, whether it's like you know through communications, press, um, policy, engagement, you know, a number of different. Uh, departments within within the department itself came together for this so um it was you know it was about managing expectation it was about making sure the the ministers were kind of aware in terms of what was going on it was redevising really a, a really comprehensive and strategic program around how we can work with partners to help us to you know achieve this objective and getting 3.5 million people to sign up to the settlement scheme um so there was a number of sort of moving parts and also you've got the you've got this really you know hot political environment where you know brexit was it as you said it's a polarizing subject so doing something within that conversation will always generate um uh notice and the kind of comment and invite comment 
regardless of whether it was a good policy, whether it was a bad policy, it will always invite comment. So, you know, you always have to kind of bear that in mind as well. And so it wasn't it wasn't a um, a light task, but it was um, it was you know it, it, it was something that through collective power of different people, you know, it, it, it's still going on now. It's, you know, I've left the Home Office, but it's a it's a policy that's, that's still happening. Uh, with Brexit, sort of got you know two weeks left until the end of the year. Um, you know, we still haven't signed the deal, but I hear it's coming. Um, so you know, it, it's something that like any sort of significant change management program, um, you know, using communication as that tool to reach people, you know, there are so many different kind of um, ways it could go, but it was really, um, yeah, it was a great thing to be a part of. And, you know, I've still got lots of really, really good friends at the Home Office who are fantastic, doing a fantastic job. And um, yeah, and and so, you know, it's not finished, but, but you know the the work that I did at the inception of it was, and you know getting the, the program up and running was was for me a really great thing to be a part of. You mentioned this, there's so many unique needs that were represented across the multitude of audiences that you had to um, communicate to. What did you learn about just communicating to the unique needs of just citizens, particularly in a political environment, and how can government officials just be more effective in communicating across these? these diverse populations, because I know just following some of the news when, when the votes were going through, a lot of it was a little bit of, you know, an agenda pushed by maybe a, uh, elected officials. Some people just wasn't aware, really didn't understand the nuances of what Brexit actually meant to them once yeah. it did get implemented. What did you learn about just those unique needs and how to truly understand the the ways to help citizens understand how it's going to directly impact them because it feels like that's what that was part of some of the push and pull in, in some of those conversations. Um, so I think um, insight was was hugely important and understanding kind of you know what what at what point our audiences were at. So you know I was particularly responsible for vulnerable communities. So. You know, many of many of which you know didn't have English as a first language. Um, you know, weren't necessarily um, you know, with with assessing. There were certain things that you could you could that you had to prove um, in order to get a result very quickly. And a lot of the communities that I was working with, you know, weren't in, in employment. Um, you know, they might not have had uh, access to certain documents they needed. So, it, you know, it was trying to understand kind of at what point are your audiences at, and you know. Dry, and, and, and gain the insight in, in terms of how they socialize, how that what they read, um, where do they go? Um, you know, how can we use employers as a as a route um, to help us? You know, cascade this message. Um, how can we work with, um, for example, um, how can we put notices up in in supermarkets? Um, in grocery stores, the equivalent in, in American English, um, you know, how can we put posters up um, where people can see and and you know, it, so what's kind of what's that media strategy in terms not just sort of traditional media but but out of home, you know, how can we really reach people? How can we translate into languages not just EU languages, which we knew obviously people were were from, but we had a number of people. And this is from you know, the insight we gained, who were, let's say, Sudanese and came to, to Italy 
uh, via that, that that relationship that existed. Um, Somalian, you know, um, there are a number of, there are some really kind of, um, there, were, there were some citizens from countries sort of in, in remote sort of villages in, in India who had come from, I can't remember what the country was now, I think it was, might have been Holland. And so it was trying to understand, you know, what are the numbers of, of, of these particular groups and how can we go that, that one step further? You know, can we translate this material into languages beyond um, EU countries? And I think the in, gaining the, the insight, that, that, that depth of insight into those different audience groups was, was really the key thing to help to decide, okay, what are our approach would be? Also, remaining agile was really important. For example, if we knew that, um, you know, Romanian citizens were a huge number, which, which they are a huge number in, in the UK, um, you know, when we saw the numbers doing really well for, for, um, you know, for people from Romania in terms of applications, we then could, you know, change our approach and then focus on another EU country where actually applications might not have been that high. So how can we drive that? So it was, it was trying to really remain agile at, at the same time as gaining like incredible insight into um in, yeah into these different groups awesome and i think that's just the beauty of the area and it's so it's so multicultural so many diverse groups and you know and, but it also speaks to how do you make sure that you're able to communicate to the various needs of these groups because it's important because they all make up the important components of your economy, the culture of the uh, the country exactly. as well. And I'm always curious about what is the 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 learnings personally. So what did you what did you learn about yourself in this process and how you connect with people and how you uh, resonate with these kind of issues from a personal level, not necessarily how you have to communicate to the to the to the citizens. But what did you take away from this and what did you learn about yourself? uh resilience <laughs> one thing um mainly because some of the timelines that we were working for working to were you know incredibly tight but also um i think agility was definitely another thing um you know if something didn't work change your approach quickly and um, but but through an informed lens in terms of how you do that and why um and i think you know it's funny it's working on something like you know the, the brexit program for the home office it kind of made me you know realize sort of the importance of um of you know government communications as well and you know the fact that we want you know fake news is obviously a huge thing and reliable news and reliable information from the, from the right sources is, is hugely important and you know with with um the work that i was doing at the home office we were really competing with a lot of fake news around Brexit, around this program that I was running, and how can you make sure you can cut through that noise? Um, and really kind of understanding that and understanding sort of the importance of, of reliable news was something that I kind of definitely took away in terms of, you know, making sure that whatever, in, ever, in, in, in any other program that I worked or, or, or campaign, ensuring that you know the message is really really accurate and, and simple enough to drive people to know that it's that they can rely on it and i think you know we've seen with covid that there's been an explosion of, of this of, of, of fake news around um reliable news sources and 
you know, it's something that is really, really important as sort of communication professionals to really ensure that, um, you know, that the message and cut through the message um, is, is, is of paramount importance. Very good. And thank you for sharing it. I think it's always important to understand how people learn from these experiences. It's almost like when you think about change management, um, you have to help people absorb the change, but then you have to absorb the change personally as well. And I love the fact that you said being resilient because I, I wouldn't, and people don't take, they don't understand that res, being resilient is very key and mm. it plays out even now while we're in COVID. And I think, you know, so thank you for sharing that. I think it's important to hear how people are learning from these experiences that they're having. So you currently moved over to Weber Shanwick as Associate Director in Corporate Affairs. Tell us about what you're doing there in your role and what led to this change and transition. Yeah, so um, I um, work in the corporate affairs team um, and I'm both sort of a planner. So uh, in, in more sort of advertising terms, a planner sort of the, 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 the strategy team, um, but also sort of on the media relations and crisis and issue side. So um, I work with a number of different clients I'm sort of spanning tech, um, government affairs, um, uh, telecoms, um, music as well, um, and um, yeah, and more tech clients. Um, and you know, look at you know what's again, you know, what's their their strategic program that we want to run through an earned uh, an owned lens. So earned being earned media. So trying to get media placement in sort of top tier titles like let's say, Financial Times, The Times, um, The Guardian, The Economist, for example, how can we really approach as well? So kind of what's that own content that we want to create to help tell that story, to help create, um, you know, those uh, those key moments for us, those hero moments that can elevate, um, elevate a brand, but also, you know, working on campaigns. So um, working on some really, really interesting campaigns around, you know, how can we um, change policy in terms of of, of particular government policy? Um, How can we sort of raise awareness of certain issues? So, you know, it's working sort of a real spectrum. And I think that's what I really love uh, and enjoy about agency side, that you kind of get this really wide um, experience in different industries with different issues, uh, working different programmes. I can sort of, you know, any one day I can sort of be working on um, you know, a media relations um, approach with a particular client, or I can be working on managing a crisis um, and understanding kind of what the, the 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 things that we need to do to kind of get the uh, the story back on on track, um, or even you know having a, a, a you know a conversation with a journalist or, or writing a strategy for for another client. You know, so I think I, it's that it's that really kind of widespread. Um, different activities that I just really really enjoy and as I mentioned at the start one of the things that I uh one of the reasons I wanted to come to agency is because um you know I think nothing kind of introduces you to industry like agency does and um whether you're you know working on sort of b2b client or consumer client or a you know a more corporate uh, financial client um, you know, you really kind of get a, a really great perspective in terms of kind of what their landscape looks like. And um, it gives you such great knowledge and experience 
um, of just, yeah, of, of just that wider spectrum. And, you know, the people that I work with, you know, at my agency, we're very fortunate in that we have sort of your traditional sort of media specialists, but also uh, more sort of more in terms of the, that advertising model with strategy and creative uh, data analytics, um, you know, digital. So we're, we're a really full sort of full spectrum um, disciplined agency. And, you know, we're, we're based headquartered in the US um, and, you know, all over the world as well. So I think having that a really kind of global agency with offices, you know, I think we've got, I, I don't want to say, I can't remember how many we've got, but I think it's about 300 offices. Um, and, you know, having connections with different people across different parts of the business is also just great to have. Do we see an expat assignment in your future but into the U.S. Or any, anytime soon? Or? Possibly, possibly. Okay. Come on. We, we, we would love to have you in the U.S. What? Um, let me ask you, in, in terms of, you mentioned a few things, but when you think about the PR and the communications field, you know, what are some of the, the trends that you're seeing, particularly now as we have more technology and more of a digital presence? What do you see some of those shifting trends in this, in this particular field in PR and communications? Well, what we're doing right now, podcasts, you know, that is a lot of people are um, are wanting to do more podcasts because podcasts are just so uh, such a great way for sort of bite sized information. And, um, you know, it's just a great tool to reach many, many people, you know, influencers in, in that sense as well. Um, so, you know, podcasts are something that's really, really risen um, in terms of just um, yeah, clients wanting to do more of them because you get some really great sector-specific podcasts, you know, for example, like this podcast. Um, and it's about, yeah, trying to get clients in the right, um, in those right topics and topic areas. And I think like things like LinkedIn Live, you know, a lot of people are wanting to do more lives, obviously from like, um, you know, I work in corporate, so um, I'm less sort of consumer-focused, but you know, Instagram Live has been obviously such a huge hit, particularly during COVID. And it's about trying to adapt to, like you said, those, those changes in, in how media is evolving. And, you know, sometimes it's not always about, you know, in the past, it was very much press release, media coverage, press release, media coverage. But now it's about packaging and co-creating content for journalists to be able to, um, you know, drive, drive the news agenda. So it's not, you know, we want to help our clients to to be sort of agenda setting and not kind of waiting for being being reactive. And I think data is a really big part of that. You know, insights and data insights really drives news. You know, you get a lot of thought leadership now around, you know, the big those big stats, you know, one in four people are are obese, for example, you know, as as a as a headline. So how can we help clients to really use data in a way that can help uh, them to sort of drive their story um, and to drive that agenda but you know really creating that content that journalists is kind of like packaged really for journalists to take um blogs obviously are again working with the right kind of influences to to draft the right blogs and get it in the right space obviously there's kind of an explosion of blogs like about what five ten years ago um, but they're kind of resurfacing again, um, just because of all the way that news is, is evolving. Um, but it's definitely, you know, people always talk about, oh, digital explosion in, in news. And I think what, what I've definitely seen this year during COVID is that there's less, I guess there's people want, you know, their news feeds constantly updated. 
and um, and it's not always about kind of that traditional media. Sometimes it is going to sort of those the, the new media in terms of sort of where it is just more sort of live stream content and working with the right platforms to produce the right content in in that shape. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's 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 a really cool landscape at the moment, I think, for, for media um, and you know from podcasts to um to lives you know there's lots of stuff that people can be working with yeah and I, anytime you go through these situations and these types of this these crisis in a in a sense there's always a disruption to the market and, and it allows people to shift and pivot and i think to your point podcast i you know i didn't think about it but lives they have started to increase and i think a lot of yes. people want Thank content you. they want content but they don't want to go to the traditional news sources because exactly. you mentioned earlier the fake news. It's always that's a big topic, and so um, some of these live segments really allow you to control the narrative as well. Yeah, and that's been one of the big pieces um, that people have been able to navigate to. Yeah, yeah, and just on that, like if you think about some of the things that have blown up this year in COVID, look at Travis Scott when he did the um, what I can't remember what um, what game it was now, but he did this big thing. Um, on oh, what gaming site was it? Uh, I can't remember, but it was it was it was huge. And then if you look at verses with with Timberland and um, uh, help me out, who was who's the other guy? Timberland and Swissbeat. Um, you know that's all online. That's no you know, and loads of people came to them and said, um, "Oh, put it on this channel." But they're like, "No, the the people are on Instagram. You know, we have that. That's our captivated audience." So that's a that that was one of the biggest successes of this year. Um, so really, being able to um, you know go to where the people are rather than get the people to come to you is you know that's how they want. That's how they really want. Yeah, it's going to be interesting how that changes the music, the music scene, because the verses was a, a lifesaver. You know, I, 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 the only one I probably tune into was Jill Scott and Erica Badu. But yeah, I think those yeah. were a game changing with DJ Nice, with him starting Club Quarantine. I think it's going to change exactly. the, the music scene. The only thing I wish they would have done is they would have created their own platform. And but instead I of going on existing. I don't think they need to, because if they... By creating their own platform, they doing they did they were they would have done just what the traditional channels wanted them to do because people you have to go to where people are people are on Instagram so why create a whole other platform where actually you can you can have mini platforms on Instagram through through the tools that you've got so it's about understanding that of the platform and kind of the the at the tools that are available to help people and to help brands, which brands are completely doing on, on Instagram. Um, so it's not necessarily, I don't, I don't think it's about them creating, like, what they've done is, is they created an incredible brand, right. you know, an incredible brand story. Um, you know, it's a simple concept. They didn't have to create a whole other channel to, take, to have people in another channel. They can just, they can just utilize the one that's there already. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I, that makes sense. And I, I think I'm thinking about it more. And as we think about black plat own platforms, having sure, sure, our sure. own black platform versus going to one that's as we think about wealth and, and creating these black owned uh, yeah. industries, you know, that's one of the that's probably the thing that I'm thinking about it more. So particularly with those, because I think they had the name recognition to be able mm. to pull it off. Now, if there were if there were somebody that didn't have the the, the brand that they had, then yeah. yeah, social media. But I think either way, I think it was a huge success 
Yeah. And really, I think really was a lifesaver for a lot of people um, as they were just kind of in the, and I think we were right in the middle of all the quarantining. So I think people are starting yeah. to get a little bit exhausted. So um, it's a very good. So as we kind of shift and, and, and get to closing, I, I did want to touch on just your experience working with slider cuts, I believe. Yeah. yeah. And you, you talked about some of that uh, experience as you were coming through grad school. One of the things I wanted to, you know, talk about, because I grew up working in a family-owned barbershop, which we still have today back in Georgia, 30 years plus. And so I understand the the importance of a barbershop, particularly in the Black yeah. community. It's a source yeah. of culture. It's a source of mentorship. Yeah. It's a source of, you know, just that community. And so I would love to understand, and you know, your experience during that process working in and supporting and doing PR for Slider Cuts. And then as it relates to Black culture, Black British culture, would love to understand what your learnings there in, in terms of this, that experience. Yeah, sure. Um, so just for the listeners then, I, as I mentioned, when I was at LSE, my research was in um, particularly communicating to underrepresented communities, but I, as a member of the Black British community, wanted to highlight you know, how the black community thinks and what we feel and how, um, you know, our culture is so alive. And, and actually my, so my, my study was in, um, was in something called public spheres and public spheres uh, came about sort of after the enlightenment period. And um, it basically meant that, um, you know, a public would come together, would debate about things, would, would um would you know it would you'd find the narrative of the day essentially in these public spheres and actually that's where media came from media came from the fact that people in these public spheres were kind of talking about topics which were of interest to the wider public um and you know they would debate they would um uh, there would be there would be collaboration of thought um they would there's, there's certain elements which i can't remember because it was a couple of years ago um but it was, it was a theorist called habermas who kind of invented the, the public sphere theory now there were certain criteria as i mentioned about the public sphere but there was also certain barriers so to, to be accepted um to come into public sphere you had to sort of be property owning white male uh and there was another thing which i can't remember now um, but so there was a lot of barriers, um, and obviously this was a number of years ago, a number of centuries ago, should I say, where this model was kind of created. But it's a model that has been used as a theory of communications. That actually, you know, the media of the day takes their their news from the public. So the public sphere is a really important concept to really understand what people are talking about, um, how you can find different trends, uh, what's important to the public. However, because of those inherent barriers, there are still barriers to public sphere. So to, our public sphere today, for example, will still have racial barriers and there'll still, be, there'll still be issues that won't necessarily come to the fore because they're not relevant to the whole public. So a lot of underrepresented communities will never have a voice in this public because actually um, their voice isn't the dominant public. So uh, Habermas and sort of other theories kind of created something which was sort of a, you know, could you could you conceptualize a black public sphere, for example? You know, is there is there enough of a public where actually our voice as a black people, 
you know, you could create a whole kind of public around. So my, um, my research looked at, is there a black public sphere in London? And I looked at, and my, my research was done in a barbershop. And so I spent a number of months um, doing an ethno- ethnography. So it's basically you're sitting in, sitting research, uh, and literally uh, ethnography is basically being a, a fly on the wall and taking kind of into account, you know, all the kind of the social goings on in, in a certain area, in a certain sort of environment. And so I was the fly on the wall in the barbershop and the black barbershop in London, in North London. Um, and um, so it was, it was really, really interesting. And, um, and actually by the end of my research, um, I, well, I, I one sort of realised that, you know, the black public sphere in London particularly is very um, novel in that, you know, as black British people, we, we because we have a, a shorter history, if you like, compared to African-Americans in the US, um, you know, we haven't necessarily gotten to the heights or had our voice heard in the same way. Um, or represented in certain industries in the same way. However, at the moment, what we're seeing in the UK, particularly in the Black British culture, is an explosion of love around Black culture. And this is before, you know, the, the events that happened this year. You know, a lot of brands have been appropriating Black British culture, particularly, and kind of selling that as a, as a way to, to reach the masses. And I think what my research kind of was looking at is rather than kind of, appropriate black British culture how can you um how can you better represent you know the voices of of, of black people in, in the UK um and redirectly communicate to them and understand kind of the, the culture and and not just you know appropriate but really appreciate it and and use it as um, and use black people and speak to black people in a way which actually they're cultural navigators so they are having to both be in the public sphere and sort of navigate that um, that those surroundings there, but also they are, uh, they have this, there's a black public sphere which is alive and thriving. And so how can they have one foot in the black public sphere and one foot in the, um, in the main public sphere and re-navigate that? And how can we make more, how can we sort of bring those issues from what's happening in the black public sphere over to the mainstream public sphere? And it was, you know, and so how can news and brands really, um, really listen to that? Um, anyway, so that's, that's, sort of top line um but whilst I was obviously in the barbershop and with my sort of PR hat on you know you've got some incredible personalities in, in barbershops as you know you know you've got like the loud the loud mouths the people who are just the, the quiet educators who are you know with the wise council the wise uncles um and you know you've got these big personalities and actually one of the barbers a guy called Slider Cuts um who was really quite a a vocal person in terms of you know he had quite a good following on social media um he um you know cut some really cool people like Stormzy and um Anthony Joshua um you know so he, he you know he had some interesting people I think he cut um you know ludicrous a couple of years of you know years before so he you know he's not he's not he's not uh what do I say um not light work basically anyway so um, whilst I was in the barbershop, I was like, you know, slider cuts, like you, you need to be doing some stuff with, with kind of your, um, you've got a really cool story here. You know, you're a barber in, in this shop who's kind of this big personality. You know, he's all about the community. He's all about community integration. He was kind of the epitome of my, like, 
my thesis in that, you know, you've got to be able to navigate those spheres. And, you know, how can you bring issues that are relevant to black community outside into mainstream? And he was all about that. He was all about sort of youth empowerment and just a brilliant story. And I was like, actually, there's some really cool stuff that we could be doing here. And so in the end, I, um, during my master's, and actually to earn a bit of money on the side as well, I ended up doing sort of some publicist work for him um, as his PR and, you know, got really, like, really happy. We had some great successes. Um, loads of cool projects with like Facebook and um, um, that other big one actually. It was a, a sort of a campaign that, that he featured in um, with, with Nike, um, later with Reebok, um, iZettle, uh, you know, some really cool brand collaborations and then equally some really cool media pieces. Um, and we ended up also um, writing a book um, which was published and you know got really good traction um yes he's you know so he went from sort of one level to the next and i think that's because you know an effective story really does um go miles and um yeah and it was it was great and so he's i mean he's he's still doing great we're still you know um i still work from from time to time um because i just love i love the stuff um and yeah so it was it was great yeah, and I actually do follow him on social media, and it sounds like the shop is an awesome shop. I actually tried to find it when I was in London, last time I was in London, because I needed a haircut, you know, and these trips <laughs> I was making, I was there for 10 days, and so I usually like to get my haircut once a week. It doesn't look that way now, because I don't, you know, <laughs> quarantining, but I did try to find the shop, but, you know, it's it's definitely the epitome of what the shop is, and barbers, they cut generations of, of families' heads, and you know, and they have a keen pulse on the community and what's happening. And so thank you for sharing it. I think that's just a tremendous story, but it's also something that I resonate with because my family grow, grew up, I grew up in, in the barbershop environment. So, so very good. So as we, as we think about next year, what do you, what's, what's on your radar? What do you got planned for 21? Um, so interestingly, actually, um, I'm going to be launching um, something with Webber around helping back businesses um, in the UK. So we're working on a project which is called Rise. And it's about um, how can we use, um, you know, RPR resources to really help black businesses in the UK rise. And I think what we found is, from some of the research that I've been doing, is that black British businesses are really kind of, um, uh, there's a lot of barriers compared to others. So, you know, whether it's funding, whether it's uh, resources, um, whether it's just kind of attention, um, you know, black British, black British businesses just have a number of sort of barriers compared to other businesses. And as Weber, you know, we really want to step up what we're doing to support underrepresented communities. And, you know, and since I've been at Weber, I've been really working with the management team, looking at kind of what our role is for, for the black community. And um, yes, at the beginning of next year, we're going to be launching this, this new project called Rise, um, which will look to help and support around five black businesses um, with um, pro bono PR um, for you know helping their business to really rise to that next level and get the earned media attention that they need and that they deserve um, and putting our kind of media know-how um, to help them directly and you know we're hoping to not just you know make an impact for their business but actually to try and start to change how the media interact with black businesses too. 
right? Thank you for sharing that. So as we as we close out, I'd like to leave the audience with just three things before we go. If they didn't take anything from this podcast and you just want to leave them with three things before we wrap up, what are those three things before we go? Oh, that's that's difficult. Um, right, so <laughs> three things. Um, and they could be words of wisdom, just, you know, as you think about understand people. Understand your story. I love it. Okay. So the, the first one is to understand your story. The importance of a great story cannot be underestimated. Um, so understand what your story is and sell your story. Um, the second thing is resilience. Um, you know, being able to bounce back, um, remaining agile and really understanding kind of, um, you know, the importance of you in uh, a company is, I think, is, is key. Um, and thirdly, also to have fun at the same time. I mean, passionate about what you're doing. Got it. And I think storytelling, people have a hard time telling their story. And I'm like, it's you. You know you. Just talk about you. And I think that that is those are very I, I love those three resilient storytelling. Um, you know, I think those are something I think we all can can take light to. So um, as we close, I just want to thank you for joining us today. Um, as I mentioned, I felt like you have a lot of it was a, life, a lot of gems you were able to drop and just really great to hear just kind of your story and background and all the things that you're doing there. So I want to thank you for joining us today and really uh, blessing us with your presence and, and, and on the podcast. Thanks for having me. And it's so nice to, um, yeah, to, to join the podcast as well. So for my audience, as we close out, I hope you enjoy this episode. Um, we'll have Sharper's information. And actually, give us your social medias, how we find you so we can follow you, continue to stay inspired by you. Tell us how to find your social medias, websites, and, 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 and that way we can look you up. Yes, yeah, so I am at Shafra, literally Shafra, um, on Instagram and um, a Harvard Shafra Gregory, which I know you can put my link, my LinkedIn link up afterwards. Um, but yeah, at Shafra on Instagram. Very good. So as we wrap up, I just want to thank everybody for tuning in. Shafra, thank you for joining us and looking forward to the, your continued impact and the continued work that you're doing there across the UK. And, and just hopefully we'll see you over in the US one and soon and, 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 and then we can get it, the benefit of some of that great knowledge and, and, and guidance that you're providing over there in, in, in London. So, so thank you for joining. Perfect. Thanks for having me. You bet. <laughs>